0: Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News reporter Will Stevenson. First up, heart health. Many of us looked on in shock when Buffalo Bills safety Tamar Hamlin collapsed after a tackle during Monday Night Football against the Cincinnati Bengals. Hamlin has been in a Cincinnati hospital ever since, mostly in critical condition. But on Friday, word came that Hamlin's breathing tube came out and he talked over FaceTime with Bill's players, part of what doctors have called a remarkable recovery so far. Before we knew all that, I spoke with local cardiologist Dr. Ram Davidos with Unity Point Health in Peoria.
1: I think that was the most scariest thing that you could see, especially an young athlete going down like this. Um, there are very few things that can cause something like this. And we always think about heart attack, which is prim- primarily responsible for an event like this. Um, sometimes it could be a genetic abnormality where they could have a thick heart and they go into some kind of an arrhythmia. When I say arrhythmia, it's an electrical instability. Uh, sometimes having that collision can, if, if there is an injury to the chest wall that happens at the right time, at the right spot, at the right speed, can cause some electrical instability as well. I think those are the two major things that we need to think about right away uh, obviously, the second part is the diagnosis of exclusion, where we need to rule out all other possibilities before we come to the diagnosis of what, what we call the commercial card is. Um, that's probably what I can think of, and they did appropriately whatever needs to be done, and, and, and pray for him to recover soon.
0: I, I was reading this morning that uh, that the player um, he, he, it was really kind of remarkable that uh, somehow I guess he sort of lost consciousness at some point on the field, but they were able to successfully get him, I guess, going and breathing again before he before he ever actually left the field. That's that's kind of a remarkable thing to be able to to uh, to try to be able to do that, isn't it?
1: Yes. So that's called a cardiac arrest where. When your heart abruptly stops pumping blood, you you pass out. I think that's what happened to him. And cardiac arrest can happen for two reasons. One is the electrical instability, which is what we think happened to him. But there is also other possibilities that can happen. But focusing on him, um, the electrical. And so think of heart as a house, and it has plumbing and it has electricity. Both are needed for the house to work properly, which is pumping the blood the different parts of the body and when there is an electrical instability and uh, the heart collapses and stops functioning and that's what happens and most of the time what we need to do is emergently shock the heart um, like it's almost like unplugging and plugging it back again an electrical device you just de- deliver a big shock across the heart and that will reset everything and uh, make the heart pump back again the key element is the time between the heart stopping and giving the that shock that's going to be the key element and there has been a lot of advocacy about trying to shorten that time as much as possible to avoid any effects from other organs not having blood for such a long time um, so what happened to him as we as said, they probably had a cardiac arrest and they were able to pump they were pumping on his chart which is called the chest which is called the CPR and they probably did the shocking treatment, which brought him which brought the heart back to life. Um, they are still working on other things that could have gone wrong with him, while he was not having any blood flow to his body.
0: In in terms of uh, of the health of the heart, especially related to this situation, um, it, it sounds like that you could be in perfect health and still have something go wrong with the heart at any time, couldn't you?
1: I um, guess no. Uh, yes, can happen even for the healthiest uh, adolescent. Um, it's it not something that we can totally avoid in a game like this because it, there are few factors that kind of comes into play for an injury like this to cause a cardiac arrest. It's just about the timing and how fast the injury or the sustained the hit on the chest right on the chest wall where the heart is overlying the chest wall. Um, there are protective things that you could wear like a chest guard, which could prevent the impact or lessen the impact. And there are so many factors, is it just the timing and the velocity and all those things matter. Um, if your struck heart is structurally abnormal, then that's a different problem and that could lead on to other issues also. So as we initially thought about, uh, discussed also, we need to make sure that his heart is structurally normal before we decide that this is what happened to him.
0: One of the things that I had seen on uh, Monday night initially, I guess, was a tweet by someone. I, I think it was either a spokesperson or a media person for Damar Hamlin, who, who at one point suggested that uh, that uh, he had been put to sleep so that a breathing or that a that a tube could be. Uh, a breathing tube, I think could be put down him is that is that sort of a standard procedure in the early stages of trying to trying to figure out what happened and diagnose and treat it?
1: That is correct, yes, it's so a part of the resuscitation and depending on how long they were lacking blood flow, there could be other damages that we need to pay attention to if it was a quick recovery, then they might recover all their they recover completely back to normal as soon well as the heart comes back to life. But for some people, if there is a delay uh, in getting the heart back to life, there could be some other problem. So they may not be breathing properly and putting a tube down the throat to help him breathe uh, during this time of stabilizing him and trying to assess the damage and recover all those things. is a pretty, pretty normal process. Yeah.
0: Will this, it, does this sort of thing involve actual surgery on the heart or is this something that can be dealt with, with for lack of a better way of putting it, without having to open them up and, uh, and you know, look closer at the heart?
1: If the heart doesn't have any structural abnormality, then he, this, what we think happened the commotion is the commercial of doesn't need any surgery. He just have to, the heart came back to life and just have to repair the damage that was done during that time period. But if there is any structural abnormality with the heart, then we need to deal with that particular condition that might warrant surgery. That's a totally different discussion. But as such, Injury to the heart, a cardiac arrest, and uh, bringing him back to life alone doesn't mean uh, he needs emergency surgery, especially for somebody who is 24-year-old. If it's an older person, then we need to worry about having blockages in the blood circulation and having to do an angiogram to find out or not. There are many procedures that need to be done. But an athletic 24-year-old, uh, blockages causing his heart to stop very less likely uh, so more focus on electrical rhythms electrical problems
0: and all this i was just thinking about his his age as you were talking about that and that maybe being a, a potential factor is it does he does he have a it sounds like he has a better prognosis maybe because of because of age assuming there were no other abnormalities as you mentioned
1: that is correct yeah his age is in his favor it is actually one interesting Thought at least what we have seen is uh, the commercial card is registry because there are so much of people that their cases have come forward and they put it in a registry, and we usually see this in people who are less than twenty year old. Um, it's not unusual to see any people more than twenty year old to have this, but it's quite uncommon. Um, having said that, anybody with his age group um, with the cardiac arrest, the outcome is going to be much better than um, much or like. 20, 30 years older gentleman or female, uh, sustaining in cardiac arrest.
0: What's sort of the timeline on r- recovering, uh, fr- from this sort of thing? And I guess along with that, is, is it possible that he'll be able to play football again?
1: Um, uh, recovery time usually depends on how much damage he had uh, during the lack of blood flow period. Um, the usual say is at least wait for 48 to 72 hours to see what kind of damage that kind of comes up and shows and um, exhibits itself. Um, Regarding playing football again, that it's it's going to be high risk for him to play again, especially with a high intensity game, uh, because there is some reports that this can happen again if he ends up getting hurt in the same way in the same time period. So it's, once happened, I think it may be not a bad idea to quit playing any competitive contact sports.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna—I was just gonna ask about that. So it sounds like that's possible. But um, it it it, it uh, it, do we need to look at? I guess maybe trying to avoid these things in in playing football so that other players don't get hurt or are there other things that maybe teams or or athletes should be thinking about in this regard? Obviously there were chest protectors and and things like that, that I I imagine can help to a point, but do we need to look at how the game, how rough the game is played?
1: Absolutely. I think this is is an eye opener to think about from that standpoint to prevent any future death of a young active athlete, right? Um, fortunately we were able to resuscitate him but what if we were not able to which will be a worst case scenario so as you said chest protectors having some protection broad, especially in the area where the chest where the heart is right right beneath the chest wall is going to be helpful and um, also we need to look at what other modifications can be done for this game to avoid this from happening in the future and as we discussed earlier also, this could happen for a very normal, healthy teenager, even if the heart is structurally normal.
0: Yeah. More week in review coming up. Now, more health news. There's a new dominant variant of COVID-19, even though statewide numbers of new cases and levels of spread have gone down. It's being referred to as XBB.1.5, At the same time, we're learning some other good news about fighting the virus. University of Illinois College of Medicine's Dr. Doug Casper talks with WMBD's Dan Oreo and Craig Collins about all of it.
2: All right, new variant, XB215, whatever it is. I know when people hear that, they immediately think the worst. Uh, put it in perspective.
3: Yeah, this is the second time in recent months that we're going through a, a new change, so a new dominant variant. Uh, we went through a BQ phase and now it's an XBD phase, and for the most part, I don't think most people have noticed anything uh, different uh, than prior waves of COVID. Uh, What's what's really happening is is that you have uh, people that are tracking the virus at a lab or research level, and they're noticing changes, and those changes um, are happening, meaning the strain of the virus that's circulating is changing, and there is some prediction from lab-based metrics that these new strains have some increased fitness. They either replicate, um, preferentially over another strain or they evade existing immune system. But it isn't, uh, it isn't changing dramatically what we're seeing on a ground level, meaning that we have said some increase in cases. We have had some increase in hospitalization, but nothing that shows to be similar to prior uh, peak waves that we had six months, a year ago. And so this is this period of discordance where Labs and monitoring are noting changes with the virus, but it's not causing dramatic changes in what we see in everyday life.
2: Is it so a lot of us probably have, if not all of us, been exposed in one way or another to covid some. And we still don't we can't figure out why have very long term effects or very negative health effects. um, and, And that's a small percentage of the population. But do you think because many of us over the last three years have been exposed to one variant or another that our system's kind of recognizing and getting used to it?
1: Oh, that's, that's absolutely
3: what's happening. It's, uh, you're describing T-cell-driven immunity. And so we talked in the past about immunoglobulins, which are a type of B-cell-generated immunity. These are just uh, inherent lines of defense that our body produces and while um, there's certainly been changes that predict that antibody-based mechanisms uh, are no longer as effective and that's why we've had some of these monoclonal antibodies pulled from the market what's really helping and what's saving um, our population as a whole is immunity that's derived through t-cell mechanisms and these have shown to be much more durable they've shown to be longer lasting and when you see these changes and strains that are occurring and we don't get the serious uh, spikes across the country with uh, people going to the hospital and people dying, what's happening is it's generated immunity protecting the masses.
4: Yeah, uh, just out of curiosity, how well are we uh, so far informed or how much more study is going to have to occur for like long term, even for those who don't have any serious symptoms or don't wind up in the hospital or anything, but long term effects of of COVID, of the fact that it's swept through the country or the world. Uh, One specific kind of version of that, I guess, doctor, is wondering about, The impact on the heart. Uh, They're saying that whether or not it's it's coronavirus, uh, maybe even the vaccine to a much lesser extent, you can get inflammation. uh, But some long term impact on the heart could also be potential. Is that accurate? Is that still need a lot more study? Is that something that's even a, a focus or is that just people like me talking about it that have no idea what we're saying?
3: Oh, no, it's absolutely accurate. You know, there are ongoing tri- there are ongoing retrospective studies. So these aren't clinical trials. These are watching people that have had COVID and that have had outcomes. And so you watch them for periods of time. And sometimes the, the period can be up to four years after exposure or after illness to to fully understand uh, the peak effects. You know, there's, there seems to be two things that happen with COVID. One is that COVID seems to unmask underlying health problems that an individual may have had, and they may have not uh, sought a lot of medical care. They may not have been up to date with lab um, you know, lab monitoring or sure. primary care mechanisms. So COVID can do that, but there also seems to be people that have lasting effects from COVID infection. And so we get kind of real-time updates, but again, these are retrospective. So we, we watch And we look backwards when people tell us that this happened. They're not clinical trials in the sense that we're testing to see what occurs.
5: Gotcha.
4: Uh, One other quick question, kind of in the same vein as that. I know you're not going to be able to probably weigh in too much. Honestly, we don't really know that much about it. Uh, But there was a story during the World Cup about a reporter who who fell over and actually uh, passed away of some heart thing that was a younger person, a 30-something. This NFL player last night in the Monday night football game that fell over and, and seemed to uh, also have a, a heart thing occur. They provided CPR, and I think they used a defibrillator on the field. Um, a lot of people jump to conclusions uh, when they see these big, high-profile things with young, healthy people uh, that seem to have sudden heart conditions. Uh, just from your own experience, your own expertise, uh, how much of a problem is that, I guess, or, or how potentially accurate could any of that be? Could Could all of this or any of this be somehow tied to the coronavirus outbreak?
3: Yeah, so viral-induced uh, heart injury or viral myocarditis is a long-known-about, uh, long-understood complication of viral infection. And coronavirus uh, is a virus, and so the the potential for um, heart wall inflammation exists with with the difference with covid was the mass number of people that got infected you just had the chance for more outcomes so you you buy more lottery tickets you have a better chance of you know of winning the lottery is kind of the analogy and so in this case what you see is you have millions upon millions of people that become infected and then you start to see outcomes that remain relatively rare but they are occurring when they occur they gain a lot of um eyes on them. There's, a, there's just a lot of people that are interested. Sure. What we know is, is that um, COVID infection can cause uh, heart wall inflammation. We know that the rate of that occurring far surpasses uh, any rate that would be seen from a use of vaccination, meaning that vaccine remains far, far, far less likely to induce uh, the same injury that you would get from natural infection. And with most superior athletes, there are standard mechanisms where they're undergoing yearly physical. Sometimes they do yearly echo exams to look for heart wall structure, make sure their valves and other function are intact. But again, um, the more people that have uh, infection on a worldwide level, the more outcomes you will see. And so it's impossible to know, you know, with these cases that occur in the NFL last night or in Soccer in the last few few years, if these are directly related, these would all be figured out well after the fact. But certainly viral-induced myocarditis is a real entity, but it's very unclear if that had anything to do with what happened uh, last night.
2: With RSV, with the um, yearly flu going around, as well as COVID, and and they kind of all mimic each other... um, is there still going to be the need when you're sick to get a COVID test to go back to work, or is it just going to be if you have any of that stuff, stay home? Do you feel better?
3: Yeah, I think that um, that that is a, that's a change in sentiment of pre-COVID times is that our our um, individual ability to to kind of self-diagnose and then to decide. Uh, what is best for us and then others we would expose ourselves to by going to work has really changed. And I think, I'm not sure that that will ever adjust back to pre-COVID uh, levels. We've talked before about how it used to be you know, seen as a badge of honor to work sick or to play a sport ill or to, you know, push through and attend an event because you, you know, you just need to be there. And, What's the most likely outcome is, is that people will just be more cautious. Whether or not they need a test every time is kind of an individual decision, which is actually a good part. We've reached the part where a person can decide whether or not they want to test and they have access to a test to do it. But the hope is is that when you're sick, especially if you have a fever, um, that those are the periods that you're maximally infectious, and those are the ones that you should sit it out until you feel better.
4: Uh, anything else you want to talk about, uh, Doctor Casper? I feel like we uh, talk about this every time uh, you are on this show. Is there? Do you have anything going on? Maybe like a personal story uh, in your own life <laughs> of something great that happened. Uh, but no. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything else that we should know about? Anything else we should be talking about?
3: No. You know, I, I'm glad you touched on the change in variants because this is going to be an ongoing discussion where there will be new strains, there will be increases um, or changes predicted by. Research and, and lab-based metrics about the impacts of COVID, but it's almost at like a boy, a boy who cried wolf phase, where we hear this so often, and yeah. not generating kind of the outcomes that we were used to earlier in COVID. And so, with that, it kind of just turns people off to talking about it. And it's not that I love to talk about it forever either. But um, what we, just for everyone to know, we monitor hospital-based metrics as our key. Point moving forward if we see people coming into the hospital and they're sick or they're staying longer having worse outcomes those are the things that are really driving public health and then what we see in our hospitals
2: you know it's not unlike the uh, yearly flu that changes every year and we have to adjust
3: certainly and and the hope with the both of the, and, and these are going to be things that remain there isn't really an end For this, meaning that these are what we call endemic viruses where we'll see consistent circulation at periods moving forward, kind of indefinitely.
0: More Week in Review coming up. The Illinois Supreme Court a week ago issued an 11th hour stay in the enforcement of the new cashless bail provisions of the state's Safety Act. This after a Kankakee County judge acting on lawsuits filed by 64 counties, including Tazewell but not Peoria, declared those provisions unconstitutional. Some counties, including Peoria County, said because of that they could not enforce cashless bail, but some counties said they would anyway. That led to the stay. Taswell County Sheriff Jeff Lauer talked about all of it with WMBD's Craig Collins and Dan DiOrio.
2: I'm trying to figure out the t- Safety Act. And the Safety Act, in my mind, um, is a hamper to law enforcement, at least in their mind, is a hamper to law enforcement. And so... Um, Uh, explain it to people explain why you think people wanted to pass it and from your point why it's hampering law enforcement
5: well the reason that it was uh, conceived is all cook county and i understand and i know from my experience at the sheriff's office when going up to cook county to pick up uh, prisoners back when i worked patrol they did have a problem they're they're huge there's a lot of people in custody that shouldn't be and I, I agree that there needed to be some changes made but the unfortunate thing is they made those changes and forced them down to counties like ours who don't have that problem which it just changes everything with the way we do business and uh, we had no no say or consultation in, in any of those changes so you know unfortunately after the fact we're working to try and fix what they broke and uh, so far there's been three trailer bills to try and fix some of the mistakes
2: so i've heard this this is a problem that they're having i mean this is a chicago centric issue and they tried to solve it in chicago but for people downstate and i've heard this from you and others they didn't consult you on the ramifications of what may happen downstate and so um it's it's not that it's a bad Uh, law for up there trying to solve their issues. It's just that the rest of the state uh, gets hampered by what they're trying to do up there. Is that what you're trying to say?
5: Yes. You know, a lot of the things that they claimed about people being held in custody because they can't pay bond, it doesn't happen down here. Uh, You know, we try and get people out of, out of jail as quickly as we can. And uh, it's an issue that I agree needed to be addressed, but not, statewide
2: in that
4: yeah. fashion. Uh, Sheriff uh, Lauer is joining us with from Tazewell County. Uh, just quickly, I wonder if you can talk to me about the value of having a, a bail process. There are times, of course, um, and I think a lot of people would just agree with this simplistically, where it's good that someone can't pay their way out of jail because they're not someone we want out on the street. I know that that might be few and far between, depending on who you ask, but there there's a value to the system itself even in places like Chicago, I think just on a sort of a generalized level, right?
5: Well, there is—it's accountability. I mean, and that's that's the business I'm in is holding, holding people accountable. And I will agree, we we have a, a flawed system that needs some adjustment. But if there's no consequences for anyone, as far as coming back to court, why should they?
2: You know what's very interesting because you, you deal with the Peoria County Sheriff. They're limited on resources and a number of people they can put in there. The determination of whether somebody's a flight risk or not, obviously, um, plays into all of this. And I don't know what, how it is in Taswell. I know it's something that the Peoria County Sheriff deals with resources. But should all that determination not be a formula that's statewide but be done locally?
5: Well, I, I believe the judges need to have that authority. That, that is what uh, part of this legislation did away with. They took the judge's ability to, to look at someone's history. Now, I, I will say with the third trailer bill, that has partially given that authority back to the judges, and uh, that's where it needs to stay.
4: Yeah, I I do have a general question about a lot of the things that get talked about in the world of politics, even just when you talk about regular policing and the work you do as a sheriff. Uh, It seems like at times, and I definitely think a lot of people would probably um, uh, believe this as well, they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, The politicians will say a thing. uh, One side of the aisle might start to say something a lot of times that's confusing to everyday Americans and to you guys who actually do this job. Um, But I think that's probably the crux of the issue, too, and why the law itself was found to be unconstitutional in the counties like yours that actually challenged it, um, that they're overreaching. They're trying to use power, political power, in ways that it's not appropriate, as you said a second ago, and really should never be exercised because, again, they're not the ones dealing with the issues that people like you deal with every day.
5: Uh, That's true. And I I think. Even if it's all well intended and they have a goal in mind, uh, I think the method of trying to get to that goal is flawed. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. Uh, Dan, you got anything else? Yeah, I I just wonder this legal challenge from what you and by the way, it's not just the sheriffs. There's a lot of states attorneys downstate who are part of this because they're in touch with you. But they are states attorneys and they know the flaws in this system downstate. From what you're hearing from them, um, there's a stay right now on the enforcement of this, but where does it go from here?
5: Uh, Well, I I will say there's 67 states attorneys and sheriffs that were involved in this, but before that, there were 100 out of 102 states attorneys that were opposed to this. Uh, So, yes, they're very familiar with it, but right now it's in the uh, Supreme Court's hands. It will go to them. They will decide if the opinion that... uh, judge uh cunnington rendered is actually correct which by the way i think that was a very well written and, and very incisive uh, uh opinion that he uh he ruled on this so now it's going to go to the supreme court and they're going to be the ones deciding whether or not they'll uphold it or change it now my belief this the, this will go into effect in some form or fashion whether it's as written or rewritten with some changes, eventually it will. So we're preparing for that. How
2: are you? Two more quick questions. One um, of them was, and for a lot of downstate states, attorney and sheriffs, you feel from your perspective, you never really got a chance to give constructive input to this law.
5: No, none. You know, I'm on the legislative committee for the Sheriff's Association. In fact, I was just made the chairman of that committee. And, uh, A lot of what we, information we get is after the fact, trying to, uh, you know, weigh in on it after it's already been done. And that's not the way to get positive change made.
2: Well, welcome to Illinois politics. They, <laughs> they push bills through, and then yeah. you read them later. Um, and, but there was something similar in New York, and maybe you studied this a little bit more. They tried something like this in New York and quickly reversed it. What's the differences between the two states?
5: I couldn't tell you. The only only similarity that, uh, that I know of is in New Jersey that uh, – Illinois and a lot of the state's attorneys would prefer using the the New Jersey model, but I'm not real familiar with it. It's hard enough trying to keep up with ours.
4: Uh, Can I just ask you quickly what you're doing to prepare? You said a minute ago that you're preparing for this to in some way, shape, or form take effect. Uh, What are some of those things that you're doing? What does that look like?
5: Well, we've been meeting with uh, state's attorneys throughout the state, judges. Uh, We have a, a work group of stakeholders within our circuit our judges, Peoria County and, and Tazewell County and our state's attorneys, uh, just getting the processes together to pass down to the, uh, the officers on the street on yeah. what they can and can't do.
0: More Week in Review coming up. Now, more health news. There's a new dominant variant of COVID-19, even though statewide numbers of new cases and levels of spread have gone down. It's being referred to as XBB.1.5. At the same time, we're learning some other good news about fighting the virus. University of Illinois College of Medicine's Dr. Doug Casper talks with WMBD's Dan Oreo and Craig Collins about all of it.
2: All right, new variant, XB215, whatever it is. I know when people hear that, they immediately think the worst. Uh, put it in perspective.
3: Yeah, this is the second time in recent months that we're going through a, a new change, so a new dominant variant. Uh, we went through a BQ phase and now it's an XBD phase, and for the most part, I don't think most people have noticed anything uh, different uh, than prior waves of COVID. Uh, What's what's really happening is is that you have uh, people that are tracking the virus at a lab or research level, and they're noticing changes, and those changes um, are happening, meaning the strain of the virus that's circulating is changing, and there is some prediction from lab-based metrics that these new strains have some increased fitness. They either replicate, um, preferentially over another strain or they evade existing immune system. But it isn't, uh, it isn't changing dramatically what we're seeing on a ground level, meaning that we have had some increase in cases. We have had some increase in hospitalization, but nothing that shows to be similar to prior uh, peak waves that we had six months, a year ago. And so this is this period of discordance where labs and monitoring are noting changes with the virus but it's not causing dramatic changes in what we see in everyday life
2: is it so a lot of us probably have if not all of us been exposed in one way or another to covid some and we still don't we can't figure out why have very long-term effects or very negative health effects um and and that's a small percentage of the population but do you think because many of us over the last three years have been exposed to one variant or another that our system's kind of recognizing and getting used to it?
3: Oh, that's, that's absolutely what's happening. It's, uh, you're describing T-cell-driven immunity. And so we talked in the past about immunoglobulins, which are a type of B-cell-generated immunity. These are just uh, inherent lines of defense that our body produces and while um, there's certainly been changes that predict that antibody-based mechanisms uh, are no longer as effective and that's why we've had some of these monoclonal antibodies pulled from the market what's really helping and what's saving um, our population as a whole is immunity that's derived through t-cell mechanisms and these have shown to be much more durable they've shown to be longer lasting and when you see these changes and strains that are occurring and we don't get the serious uh, spikes across the country with uh, people going to the hospital and people dying, what's happening is it's generated immunity protecting the masses.
4: Yeah, uh, just out of curiosity, how well are we uh, so far informed or how much more study is going to have to occur for like long term, even for those who don't have any serious symptoms or don't wind up in the hospital or anything? But long term effects of of COVID, of the fact that it's swept through the country or the world, Uh, one specific kind of version of that, I guess, doctor, is wondering about. The impact on the heart, Uh, they're saying that whether or not it's it's coronavirus, uh, maybe even the vaccine to a much lesser extent, you can get inflammation, uh, but some long term impact on the heart could also be potential. Is that accurate? Is that still need a lot more study? Is that something that's even a, a focus or is that just people like me talking about it that have no idea what
3: we're saying? Oh no, it's absolutely accurate. You know there are ongoing tri- there are ongoing retrospective studies. So these aren't clinical trials. These are watching people that have had COVID and that have had outcomes, and so you watch them for periods of time. And sometimes the the period can be up to four years after exposure or after illness to to fully understand uh, the peak effects. You know there's there seems to be two things that happen with COVID. One is that COVID to unmask underlying health problems that an individual may have had, and they may have not uh, sought a lot of medical care. They may not have been up to date with lab um, you know, lab monitoring or sure. primary care mechanisms. So COVID can do that, but there also seems to be people that have lasting effects from COVID infection. And so we get kind of real-time updates, but again, these are retrospective. So we, we watch and we look backwards when people tell us that this happened. They're not clinical trials in the sense that we're testing to see what occurs.
4: Gotcha. Uh, one other quick question, kind of in the same vein as that. And I know you're not going to be able to probably weigh in too much. Honestly, we don't really know that much about it. Uh, but there was a story during the World Cup about a reporter who who fell over and actually uh, passed away of some heart thing that was a younger person, a 30-something. Uh, this NFL player last night in the Monday night football game that fell over and, and seemed to... Uh, also have a, a heart thing occur. They provided CPR, and I think they used a defibrillator on the field. Um, a lot of people jump to conclusions uh, when they see these big, high-profile things with young, healthy people uh, that seem to have sudden heart conditions. Uh, just from your own experience, your own expertise, uh, how much of a problem is that, I guess, or, or how potentially accurate could any of that be? Could Could all of this or any of this be somehow tied to the coronavirus outbreak?
3: Yeah, so viral-induced uh, heart injury or viral myocarditis is a long-known-about, uh, long-understood complication of viral infection. And coronavirus uh, is a virus. And so the, the potential for um, heart wall inflammation exists. With, with The difference with COVID was the mass number of people that got infected. You just had the chance for more outcomes. So you, you buy more lottery tickets, you have a better chance of, you know, of winning the lottery. Is kind of the analogy, and so in this case, what you see is you have millions upon millions of people that become infected, and then you start to see outcomes that remain relatively rare, but they are occurring. When they occur, they gain a lot of um, eyes on them. There's a, there's just a lot of people that are interested. Sure. But what we know is is that um, COVID infection can cause uh, heart wall inflammation. We know that the rate of that occurring far surpasses uh, any rate that would be seen from a use of vaccination, meaning that vaccine remains far, far, far less likely to induce uh, the same injury that you would get from natural infection. And with most superior athletes, there are standard mechanisms where they're undergoing yearly physical. Sometimes they do yearly echo exams to look for heart wall structure, make sure their valves and other function are intact. But Again, um, the more people that have uh, infection on a worldwide level, the more outcomes you will see. And so it's impossible to know, you know, what these cases that occur in the in NFL last night or in soccer in the last few, a few years, if these are directly related, these would all be figured out well after the fact. But certainly viral-induced myocarditis is a real entity, but it's un- very unclear if that had anything to do with what happened uh, last night.
2: With RSV, with the um, yearly flu going around, as well as COVID, and they kind of all mimic each other, um, is there still going to be the need when you're sick to get a COVID test to go back to work, or is it just going to be if you have any of that stuff, stay home, do you feel better?
3: Yeah, I think that... um that that is a that's a change in sentiment of pre-COVID times is that our our um, individual ability to to kind of self-diagnose and then to decide uh, what is best for us and then others we would expose ourselves to by going to work has really changed and I think I'm not sure that that will ever adjust back to pre-COVID uh, levels. We talked before about how it used to be you know, seen as a badge of honor to work sick or to play a sport ill or to you know. Push through and attend an event because, you, you know, you just need to be there. And what's the most likely outcome is, is that people will just be more cautious. Whether or not they need a test every time is kind of an individual decision, which is actually a good part. We've reached the part where a person can decide whether or not they want to test and they have access to a test to do it. But the hope is, is that when you're sick, especially if you have a fever, um, that those are the periods that you're maximally infectious, and those are the ones that you should sit it out until you feel better.
4: Uh, anything else you want to talk about, uh, Doctor Casper? I feel like we uh, talk about this every time uh, you are on this show. Is there? Do you have anything going on? Maybe like a personal story uh, in your own life, <laughs> of something great that happened. Uh, but no. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything else that we should know about? Anything else we should be talking about?
3: No, you know, I, I'm glad you touched on the change in variants because this is going to be an ongoing discussion where there will be new strains, there will be increases um or changes predicted by research and, and lab based metrics about the impacts of COVID. But it's almost at like a boy, a boy who cried wolf phase where we hear this so often and yeah. not generating kind of the outcomes that we were used to earlier in COVID. And so with that it kind of just turns people off to talking about it and it's not that i love to talk about it forever either but um what we, just everyone to know we monitor hospital-based metrics as our key point moving forward If we see people coming into the hospital and they're sick or they're staying longer having worse outcomes those are the things that are really driving public health and then what we see in our hospitals
2: Yeah, you know, it's not unlike the yearly flu that changes every year and we have to adjust
3: Certainly, and, and the hope with the both of the, and, and these are going to be things that remain. There isn't really an end for this, meaning that these are what we call endemic viruses where we'll see consistent circulation at periods moving forward kind of indefinitely.
0: More Week in Review coming up. Wildlife Prairie Park in Hannah City will soon be unveiling some new residents. Three cougars, all sisters, currently at a zoo in Michigan, will soon make their way to Peoria now that fundraising has been successful for them and to get them enclosures. WMBD's TJ Carson talked with park CEO Roberta English.
6: We actually exceeded our goal. I just don't know by how much, so we're very excited. <laughs> <laughs> we um great the way to start the new year and um just a continuation of this you love our park campaign that we are really doing to bring uh, a lot of infrastructure improvements as well as new animals to the park can
7: you give us a background on this project
6: well the cougar campaign we actually when we started this capital campaign about a year ago um, we actually raised some initial funds to just Pull out the existing enclosure that was there. There was a lot of old fencing, and the new um, rules are a lot different from the old rules. Our cougars died in 2020, so we took this as an opportunity to take that enclosure all the way down, um, improve the inside, as well as um, then begin the fencing project. So we were in. A, now that we got the some of the dirt work done, we were ready to um, get fencing, and the fencing was really expensive. Um, as you know, COVID increased the price of lots of building materials, especially steel and um, fencing. So this is just the fencing alone is going to be over $200,000. So we knew we needed the public's help in order to pull that off.
7: So it sounds like the main uh, goal is to get something done for the fencing. Uh, what else is the, are the campaign funds going to help fund? <laughs> we,
6: obviously, well the fencing is just part of it so that's a big chunk of it um and then the dens itself the dens where the cougars live that's the next step um just getting those um up to date um reconstructed work on the roofs, things like that make sure that they have a good place to live and actually we're going to be getting three cougars so we want to make sure that we have dens that are suitable for um, for three cougars we used to have two
7: so you'll be building an additional den then is that correct
6: we we need to know what the USDA is going to ask for. So whatever USDA laws um, and well, rules change, <laughs> so we are uh, trying to find out if the, most likely each one will need its own separate area for um, when you do vet exams. You need to be able to separate animals. So we want to make sure we can separate three animals, not just two. So whatever, however, we can comply with whatever the current rules are. That's what we're going to do. But that you know, these dens are concrete. You know, they have roofs, they have water, electricity, so it's like, you know, a home improvement project except for animals, so you know how expensive those are.
7: Now, you're acquiring three cougars for this. Can you tell us about the cougars?
6: Sure. Um, they're very cute. <laughs> and, um, they're all female. They're sisters, and um, they, are, they were born in August so um and they we we want to get them as soon as possible because they're getting bigger and bigger. I had an opportunity to, to visit them last week with our one of our park veterinarians um to do some uh you know checkups on them things like that. And uh they're they're really frisky and fun and they're, they're really small at the moment just like size of a small dog or a, or a large cat, but they're going to be very big. So we want to get this enclosure done this these dens completed so we can get the cougars here where are these cougars coming from they're coming from michigan
7: was it always the intention to get three females uh, was a male possibly in the mix as well
6: we we had intended to get um two and we just have an opportunity to get three because they're they're in the same litter and they're all three sisters and they're all together so we didn't want to separate them so we're gonna we're gonna take all three um I suppose if there was a male in the litter, we would have taken the male. But um, these are all these are all girls.
7: Okay. Uh, what's the timeline uh, for the exhibits? Because I I say this is is this going to be a new exhibit or kind of like reviving one or kind of continue? What What's the timeline?
6: Well, the it's winter now, so right now we can start work on the dens, but the actual building. You know twelve foot fence in the ground that's not going to be able to happen until you know March whenever the weather breaks that's when the um I'm, when the fencing company will be able to start but right now we're going we're working on the improvements we want to make to the den. but we're excited we expect that hopefully as long as winter doesn't last too long, we can start constructing the coop coug- the the cougar fencing we can get that up starting in March, and it should only take a, a couple of weeks to get all that work done so we're excited we figure but at least. Our goal is April to make sure we have the cougars here by April and may before the before the big season starts again before field trip season that 's our main goal
7: so you hoping having this exhibit open by April then is that a fair assessment yeah,
6: by april April may, but you know things things some they sometimes they go faster than others and sometimes they go slower you know all, the other part of this campaign has been our campaign for the wolves and we have, we finally finished the wolf enclosure um a few days ago, and the wolves will be you know any day now the wolves will be out there
7: so this campaign is it for the cougars and the wolves like what what is all entailed in this campaign
6: well we are in this is a three year campaign where we are raising three point eight million dollars for um this um capital campaign for the park. We are more than halfway through this campaign we've um, raised over two million dollars. So this is part of a larger campaign to make some really needed improvements to Wildlife Prairie Park um, infrastructure-wise, to our buildings, to our enclosures, to keep this park um, vibrant and, and, the, and in this community and serving this community well. And a, a big, last year we focused on improving a lot of the buildings, um, a lot of the infrastructure problems that we were having this year. And we, we did also bring in many animals last year. But this year we're working on our key animal exhibits the Cougars, the wolves um, will move on to you know improving the bear enclosures, things like that. Oh, this so is. The, the, the wolves will, the, the wolf enclosure project was a big project as well. We, it was you know roughly a fifty thousand dollars or so project where we had to build the retirement bins so we can move our last remaining wolf McKenzie out of the wolf enclosure. She has now moved into the retirement bins that we constructed, and then we brought in we're bringing in a new pack of wolves that will be. Out there, any time.
7: And then, just to clarify, this is year two of the three-year campaign. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. When these exhibits open, what can people expect to see?
6: Well, the wolves will be here. You know, this weekend. You know, bring your family out to the park this weekend. We have four brand new um, new wolves. The wolves are six months old, and there are four of them. And the um, there's three boys and one girl. It'll be very obvious (laughs) who the girl is, and um, they'll be able to see, and we're going to have, you know, enrichment where now our keeper chats will, we're going to be able to, we'll be able to do education about wolves, being animals that were native to this area again.
0: That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest communications station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at 1470 WMBD.com. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD News.